When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In philosophy, one of the lessons of philosophy is the first thing you do when you encounter a thinker is try not to judge them, but try to let them judge you. Try to ask yourself, what do I look like from their position? Because what we do is we all look at, you know, what do I think of Hegel from my position? But when you look at someone like Hegel and you go, no, what, what do we look like to him? And so the first thing is to place yourself under the judgment of the other and then engage critically. And it, so, you know, if, if nothing else, I came away from that experience deeply enriched. Never knew her mother. I'd love to dance before it flooded. And she would wait before the sunrise and drink her coffee neath the stars. Here we go. I mean, they just don't even know. Everybody listening to this, you just don't even know. Strap that helmet on. You know what I love about <laughs> the fact that we are recording the intro to this diamond of an episode that yeah. people are about to hear? Is that like years from now, some unsuspecting person is going to be just browsing the interwebs. Yeah. You know, looking for some, some you know, uh, existential despair wrapped <laughs> in a beautiful Northern Irish accent. <laughs> and he's going to come, somebody's going to come across this episode years from now. Yeah. And just go, oh my, f- what? Yeah. This is gold. I need to sit down. And this happened to just come to us. Yeah, Man, this is this is our little present to the world. Well, the the funny thing is, you got to tell the backstory about how this came to happen. Yes, like, this was all just an idea. You you just you thought you you came up with this. I was okay. So real quick, everybody, <laughs> we have Doctor Peter freaking Rollins on the show again today, but a our very good, special episode. Good friend, good friend. our good friend Doctor Peter Rollins, and um. <laughs> Just I, we love this guy's work so much because it's so freaking disturbing. Yeah, and it makes you think so much. And it, he's just such a he's such an inspiration. And every anytime you think you've got something figured out, just talk to Pete, and he's just gonna set you back to square one. <laughs> yeah, and I, we love his work so much. So he's got this retreat that he does, and I've always been a huge C.S. Lewis fan. And mm-hmm. he's got this retreat that he does, and he started kind of talking about it in spring and summer and inviting people out to Northern Ireland, to Belfast, where C.S. Lewis is from and where Pete's from, and um, stay in the place where C.S. Lewis and his wife had a honeymoon and see the forest that inspired Narnia and do a critical look, like a critique, a critical engagement with the work of C.S. Lewis. Well, that's like all you needed to tell me. I wanted to go so bad. Yeah. Because of work and family and things like that, I I just knew I wasn't going to be able to make it happen. So I'm at a uh, 4th of July parade, and it just hits me. I'm like, we need to do a C.S. Lewis episode. 
with Pete Rollins around the topics of engaging critically and respectfully with people that you may not agree with 100%, but you have a deep admiration for. Yeah. Because I think that's a big gap in, in society. And so I, I went out on a limb, and it's, you know, it's not like we text each other all the time. And I shot him a message and said, what do you think of this? And he just started bubbling up with all these ideas. And this, the idea for this episode was born of getting Pete to come on around C.S. Lewis, but really to, to show people how we can and should critically engage with the work of those people that we may uh, have to learn to admire, but we at least respect. And you can do a critical engagement with you know, people that aren't just like you. And we get into so many wonderful things in this episode. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's funny uh, because um, it, it, there's a parallel there that I think, I think we talk about it. I know I at least wrote it down in my notes. Like there's, in conversations like this, they're so organic and you'll notice the way it flows just kind of flows naturally mm-hmm. to the part where you come in with a bundle of questions yeah. and you don't get to half them just because you're like, I have to let this just go. It just didn't go this direction. But like, there's, there's something really cool about the fact that we talk about C.S. Lewis's work and we talk about the fact that there was a particular uh, theologian that C.S. Lewis encountered um, in, in his uh, um, college days where he even points out the fact that I, I didn't really agree with this guy. Charles Williams? I can't remember now. Yeah. I don't have my notes in front of me. But like, but like he, he, he notes that this guy was extremely important. He's mm-hmm. like, I don't agree with what this guy says, but he... It's important to wrestle with what he says. That's right. And, um, and so Pete, you know, there's a parallel there with, with the way Pete, you know, his relationship with C.S. Lewis, where he's like, I, I still have issues with some of the certain things that he says, but I, I understand the value mm-hmm. in, in wrestling with it. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, the, the, the major important key and the thing that we've always talked about on our show. It's like, you know, there's, you've got to make room for those other voices because there's yep. still value there. There's yep. still important things. Like I think you said early on, Gosh, almost two years ago now. Uh, coming up on two years. Oh, I know what you're going to say right now. Yeah, like you don't have to agree with everything someone has to say to agree with anything they say. Yeah. Or something they say, you That's know? right. So. I said that. You did say that. It was good. <laughs> it was good juice. <laughs> so still, true, though. Still holds true. Still, still holds true. Yeah. And uh, people, you know, that look back through our catalog and forgive us for the production value in the early days. <laughs> yeah. And, and the lack of know-how. Right. Um, We'll notice that like we've been, we've tried really hard to just get a lot of people from various aspects of the community of faith that kind of surrounds uh, our project, and it is really important to celebrate people and where they're coming from if they're doing it honestly, and uh, it's something we really want to do. So this episode touches on some really good stuff. For those of you that don't know Pete Rollins, uh, I mean, you're talking so pioneer of what's called pyrotheology. This guy's got his doctorate in post-structural thought. So that's why we call him Dr. Pete Rollins. <laughs> and he's written a myriad of books. Um, some of our favorite titles that he's written is um, How Not to Speak of God. It's one of my favorites. The Idolatry of God, Divine Magician, Fidelity of Betrayal. Insurrection. Insurrection. Yeah. Probably kickstarted our podcast in a lot of ways. John and I both got our hands on that book, and we just went, What? And if, uh, if you guys have been following, if you're part of the book club on Patreon, we just sent that one out last, last, last month. Yep. Insurrection went out as a free gift to anybody at uh, the Patreon level that gets the book club. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he's just, he started a community in Belfast, Ireland. That's kind of an alternative to church and it's, it's a transformative 
art experience um, surrounded by what Caputo would call like um, a core of theopoetics. Mm. So, you know, to talk about God, theo, God, um, and then what we usually tack onto that is logi or, you know, theology, which means knowledge of God. And that's tough because you can't really have true knowledge of God. So Caputo and, you know, inspired by Derrida and then, you know, coming and inspiring guys like Pete Rollins talk about having a theopoetics or a theopoetry um, where art and um, uh, looking at, uh, you know, the ambiguity of what's going on in between the things that we, we just can't quite know um, gives a really beautiful way of encountering the divine and spirituality and things like that. This guy is just as good as gold. He's as nice and respectful and genuine mm, yeah. as he comes across. We, we can't recommend following his work enough. He has a Patreon. Yes. Please support him. Um, this is the kind of author, thinker, um, activist that you want to get behind because he's, he's doing things that inspire so many other people, including us. Yeah. So please support Pete Rollins. Even if you have to not support, I'd rather you support Pete Rollins than support <laughs> us. Honestly, um, both if you can. But, <laughs> but seriously, yeah. in, in all seriousness, um, this is, it's a joy for us to have him on again. Yeah, and if you can go see him live, absolutely go see him live. He does some really incredible, unique live shows, including one that is based all in parable. Mm. So he tells all these parables, uh, some of which he's collected from various religions, um, not just Christianity, and some that he's written himself. So good. And there's a there's an arc to it and, and three stages, and it's just really cool. If you want a taste of that, um, we, we did uh, a special live recording of it um, last year at some point. Yeah. So we've had him on a few times. So if you want to go back and get a taste for Pyrotheology, his Pints and Parables is, is the name of the, the parables show that he does. Yep. We've got that. Um, we've, we've had him on a few times. So if you want to want to get a sense for what his, um, what the, the, the real heart of his work is, you yep. can go back and listen to that. But last thing I'll say before we roll tape is um, our, one of our intros into his work was his atheism for Lent. Oh, yes. Not going to say any more about that. Maybe after um, yeah. we talk to him, I'll say a little more. But we do have a promo code yes. for anybody that wants to do atheism for Lent at a discount. I could not recommend it highly enough. Mm. So uh, check the show notes. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, or message us on Twitter or wherever, and we'll get you that promo code for 20% off atheism for Lent. So Sweet. without further ado... For like the however many time on our podcast, I can't remember, three, four, I can't remember. Yeah. We give you Dr. Peter Peter freaking Rollins. The widow's sculptor's wife who'd been posing all her life, just wishing she'd be here like clay. Brother drove down to the valley and he would sleep by her side. All right, well, here we are again with uh, Dr. <laughs> Pete, Pete Rollins, Dr. Rollins himself. I finally, I've finally given me my correct title after all these years. I feel vindicated. <laughs> I will never live that down. That was so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that was my favorite. I never, I never, I never use the doctor thing at all. But then I noticed when you put down like ten people who were on your <laughs> podcast, 
everyone was a doctor except me. I was like, oh, <laughs> we were even calling people doctors who weren't doctors. I think so. Yeah. It's like nobody's going to know that person. Just put doctor in After front of their name. After all that school and money, you'd think I would go by doctor everywhere. All people the at the grocery store, I am the doctor. There's a rule of thumb that if someone says, especially in a book, if someone has a a doctor in their book, it's usually a sign that it's a really bad book, a very bad doctor. (laughs) You'll notice actually the creations to it. Like a lot of the fundamentalist groups, if the person has a doctorate from some terrible university, they're always doctor such and such. So that's a... In, in the Europe, they never use doctor. You don't use it, even in the academy, you know. It's not something you prepare to. Whatever. Interesting. Yeah. Whatever. Oh, so well, cool, man. Peter Rollins' books are so good. He doesn't need the doctor behind it to support it. We liked you before we knew you were a doctor. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So, um, yeah, you've been, you've been jet-setting, man. You've been all over the place. Thanks for making time to do, like, Round three with the deconstructionists. We're, we're loving know, this. Man, I always love being on the show. Oh, thank you. So where you been? What have you been doing? Catch, catch everybody up on your work a little bit. Yeah, so I actually spent a good bit of time back in Northern Ireland, where I'm kind of from. Um, and I was uh, there partly to see friends and family. Um, but also I was doing um, a four-night kind of five-day kind of festival event uh, around the work of C.S. Lewis. Um, in this amazing hotel that's that backs onto this incredible forest. Uh, it was a hotel where C.S. Lewis had his honeymoon with Joy. He spent a lot of time there, um, and we'd have discussions with friends. And in fact, the forest, some people say, is, is part of the inspiration for the the Narnia uh, trilogy, the Forest of Narnia. Mm. So it's a stunning place, and uh, we had you know five days of music and art and talks and tours and drinking by fireside it was it was a lot of fun so bummed so bummed to have missed that i know honestly really really tried to go are you going to do it again i'm hoping to actually the the whole event worked you know exceeded my expectations um and so i want to start using that hotel for similar events uh maybe next year maybe kind of same time next year there we go. Oh, man. Come on, Adam. I got to make it happen. <laughs> it's so interesting, um, just the fact that you engaged with C.S. Lewis. I, you know, I took um, such an interest in that because, oh, for so many reasons, man. First of all, because he was like one of the first um, more philosophically mind, minded authors that I ever engaged with and then just devoured his work in my early days. And then, interestingly enough, like kind of coming through, a, you know, a period or being in a period of a little bit more like decentering and de- deconstructing and, you know, looking at things a little bit differently and realizing um, just life just differently. Um, coming back to it again is really weird. It's really, yeah. really weird. You know? Yeah, well, yeah no, that, I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why um, I wanted to do a festival in C.S. Lewis. I mean, there, there were some kind of very circumstantial reasons and some deep reasons. The circumstantial reasons were C.S. Lewis is from Belfast. Not many people know that. And I wanted to do something where he was born in a place that kind of meant a lot to him. Uh, He's a great writer. He touched the lives of millions. Um, He was the first, the crazy thing is he was kind of the first, um, uh, what would you call it, a social media Christian in a sense. Because although he didn't like 
the you know being in the limelight. He didn't like popular culture. He, um, the BBC basically made him famous. Like during the war, he he was eventually persuaded to go onto the radio and do these short kind of like uh, podcasts, <laughs> um, uh, and those brought him into the homes of everybody in the UK. I mean, this was a time when basically there was, I don't know how many radio stations. It was kind of like, basically, it was the BBC. Um, <laughs> so he was listened to by millions. So all of these make him fascinating. Um, but also, he's in the past of a lot of people, a lot of people who maybe wouldn't agree with C.S. Lewis anymore, but but still, like you said, like maybe in their early kind of Christian experience, they'd read some of his books and he was important. Mm. Um and, and then most importantly, I wanted to do a festival and an event around somebody I didn't agree with. Mm. Um, that was key because most conferences are based around people that the conference organizers agree with and like. That's a very common thing. that we. But what would it mean to actually do a whole event around somebody that you maybe disagree with, but you respect deeply? you think might have something to say critically to you wow. and actually to have four or five days where you engage critically. I mean, there's something about doing that, which I think is symbolic, especially today when, you know, there's a lot of um, uh, straw man arguments, a lot of scapegoating and uh, social media, mm. you know, mm. if you don't agree with me, um, I think the worst of you. So to do something around a figure, who was brilliant, super smart, very talented, um, and also maybe um, who I struggle with in some ways. So that sounds like fun. What's which, What's interesting? The most interesting to me about that um, about you saying that is is the fact that and this is something obviously we can talk about. But he he has this famous debate uh, with this um, with this philosopher named Anscombe um, back in the late forties, and he was very much uh, of a similar mindset. It seemed like um, from everything that I could see in research. You know, he he had this situation where this young whippersnapper of a of a philosopher kind of took him to task a little bit on some of his arguments, and instead of just kind of like doubling down on on what he had written, he he really took it to heart and and eventually made changes to his argument and that sort of thing. So he seemed to be a very humble guy who would have probably done the same. Yes, he was a guy who loved engaging with all of the kind of conversations of the day, all of the kind of the interesting philosophical and cultural issues. Um, he enjoyed rigorous debate. He was the president of the Socratic Society in Oxford for many years. He was the founder, I think. Um, he was a regular debater. And so, yeah, that was part of it. Partly I was wanting to recreate the spirit of C.S. Lewis. Wow. Um, we actually we actually did a recreation of that very debate. Oh, wow. uh, that was 1948 it happened and it was it's one of the most famous debates in uh, ac the academic world in the United Kingdom um, and uh, you know as you said like Elizabeth Anscombe she was 20 years younger than Lewis at the time she's a Wittgensteinian philosopher incredible uh, thinker incredibly passionate and 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 ec uh, eccentric and all of that and she and she took took C.S. Lewis to task we had, by the way, some great actors playing the parts. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to hopefully do it again in the future. It was a lot of fun. But um, uh, what was interesting is that, that Anscombe was defending naturalism. C.S. Lewis has this argument that naturalism, you probably know this, is he thinks is self-refuting. Um, and chapter three of Miracles uh, argued this. 
Um, and Elizabeth Anscombe takes him to task and says, no, it's not. Now, what's interesting is Anscombe is even more conservative than Lewis. <laughs> like, she's a very conservative Catholic. Um, and and uh, so she's not defending naturalism because she's a naturalist. She's not defending secularism because she's a secularist. She's defending it because he thinks she thinks that the argument's incorrect that he uses. Yeah. So again, it's a, what ended up being is the whole debate was more of a an example of how how to treat the people you disagree with hmm. and how and what what a real debate looks like. Um, so that that was fun that Elizabeth Anscombe was saying like, oh, I, I'm I'm not a naturalist at all, but but don't create a straw man. Don't create. You know, don't don't attack someone for what they don't believe. You know, don't make their position so weak that that you're not betraying who they really are. Oh, so man. good, man. Because you're right. In our social media culture, um, all you get are these echo chambers. All you get are these people that cartoonize and exaggerate yeah. and um, really manipulate the other's position when they're not there. And then speak to a crowd of people that we've collected for ourselves that are going to just reflect back to us exactly the positions that we want to hear. And I just don't think if you're interested in being an authentic human being and growing and seeing life for what it is and not what you want it to be, how can we continue to kind of take up like what you're doing here in the spirit of Lewis? And what are some, what are some ways that you can see people, you know, other than, I, you know, I really do believe just engaging with your work has helped me with that a lot, but what are some other ways that, um, why is this so important right now, and how can we continue to to foster this kind of spirit? I mean, it, it is. And what was beautiful about the debate um, is that you know Anscombe takes very seriously what C.S. Lewis says, and she she tries to portray it correctly and then critique it. What what all of us tend to do when we encounter someone who thinks differently is take their weakest the weakest part of their argument and attack that. Yeah. rather than take the strongest part of their argument and attack that. And the reason for engagement is because if you make someone into a, what's called, in philosophy it's called a straw man, where you basically kind of take the weakest part of their argument and just change it slightly so that you can beat it really easily, right? Mm. Um, so you kind of like, you take the real person, you make them into a straw person. But the main problem with that is, you don't win the argument. I mean, you, 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 you walk away feeling great because, like, you know, you beat the straw man, but, but you haven't actually really engaged with the other, so nothing really changes. It, it's so important to take your, your opponent seriously, to listen and to engage with the best of their argument and, and, and then critique it, but not to always look for the weakest link to attack. I mean, I, I, if someone attacks me, I hope that they will you know, listen to the strongest aspect of my argument and critique that rather than, you know, the weakest part or even worse, just misrepresent it slightly mm. so that they can win, you know? Yeah. We see a lot of people doing this, um, with, uh, maybe the, the brand or the, the style of spirituality or religion that they've quote unquote left and mm -hmm. then, and then feel the need to almost like this associate disassociate thing that that's going on all the time. It's like, you see, um, you know, like for, let, let me just use myself for an example. Like I have to resist, uh, the impulse to cartoonize guys like, uh, that I used to just love like Mark Driscoll or, um, John Piper or, you know, some of these people and, it, you know, names aren't important. I'm just using myself as an example, but 
I feel this urge to now go back and revisit that old version of myself, that, you know, 20 year old version of myself and almost make fun of myself, but that distant version of myself by finding the weakest aspects of those people and the the most glaring um, ugliness of maybe things that they're doing and hoisting that up and saying, this is the whole person. This is, this is the whole argument. This is the whole perspective. I mean, it was hard work for me to do with Lewis because I, I respect um, Lewis. Um, I respect his writing, um, uh, but I reread everything, all his nonfiction anyway, for you know the festival. And and at times, um, I find it very difficult because at times I wanted to just because I disagreed with quite a lot of it. I was like, you know, I wanted to to just um, judge it. In philosophy, one of the lessons of philosophy is the first thing you do when you encounter a thinker is try not to judge them, but try to let them judge you. Try to ask yourself, what do I look like from their position? Because what we do is we all look at, you know, what do I think of Hegel from my position? But when you look at someone like Hegel and you go, no, what what do we look like to him? Mm. And so the first thing is to place yourself under the judgment of the other and then engage critically. And it, so, you know, if, if nothing else, I came away from that experience deeply enriched. And in Barstow they rebired, the engine just burned out, like the fire in his belly and in his heart. And he leaned against the door and he cried, I'm trying to be more, but some folks just don't have the parts. So let, let's get into a little C.S. Lewis. Let's, yeah, let's let's do a little. Let's, let's, let's give people a little, little taste. <laughs> let's talk about a few things yeah. that uh, that we could engage with critically. So one of the things that that so you gave us some homework, and um, I took copious notes. Yeah, you did. So as to be prepared. That's what John does. Are, yeah, I come. You guys can't see this, but that's impressive. Yeah, <laughs> I I love bullet points. So yes, that's, you do. That's the route I went with this, but. One of the things I thought I found that was really interesting uh, within the material that that you kind of gave us to look over was his idea of myth becomes fact or his idea of incarnation. And I found myself really thinking about, um, for example, your Pines and Parables um, uh, live event that you do mm-hmm. and, and how you use uh, these parables as a vehicle to convey deeper truths. And so I, I find uh, C.S. Lewis' uh, discussion on incarnation as a debate we're still kind of currently having, um, and, and specifically when it comes to, uh, in the West, how do we talk about how to properly read scripture, for example? Mm. So the idea that myth in the scriptural sense, it does not mean fairy tale. And so Lewis, I think, talks about, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, he echoes what many modern authors preach, that the mythology of the Bible is necessary for humanity. The real modern belief is the shadow of the original myth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is an area of Lewis that, that I think is really interesting and, I, and I'm critical of elements of it. We may be able to get into it, but it, it'll get deep very quickly. But um, <laughs> I actually, uh, as part of the festival, I took everybody to the Titanic Museum. And oh, cool. uh, there's this massive, incredible museum for, about the Titanic in Belfast, because that's where it was built. Oh. And the reason for that is when you think about it, you go like, well, the Titanic sank. Why Why do we still talk about it? Why do we have like museums? Why do we have movies? It's just a ship sinking at the end of the day. Lots of people die, but that happens sadly all the time, right? Yeah. Um, but what, what's interesting um, is about 15 years before the Titanic sank, 
there was actually a short story called The Wreck of the Titan. And what's crazy about it is uh, it's almost identical to what happened with the Titanic 15 years later. If you read it, you'd think, you know, the part the book was written after the Titanic because it was about a ship that's basically the same size with basically the same number of people that hits an iceberg on the same side of the ship in the same ocean on the same night. Whoa, <laughs> going on the same. It has a shortage of lifeboats, just like the Titanic. And so it, it's incredible when you see this. It's like, whoa, that's that's weird. But w- one way of explaining this is that the, the, the wreck of the Titan was a mythology. It was a story um, that the ship, it, it captured um, the... The, the moment. So, for example, you know, the technology, industrialization, the, 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 the kind of human uh, technological progress, humans going through the ocean of nothingness, you know, uh, it also a class stratification. You had the upper class, the middle class, the lower class at the bottom. And it, it, it was the ideal image, uh, what's called the ideal ego of the society. It was how the British Empire understood itself. Um, uh, it had, you know, this all of the luxury of that kind of aristocratic wealth. And, of course, the, sh- the sinking is a sign that all of this is coming to an end mm. with the rise of trade unions, with the, uh, with the coming war, uh, with kind of the, the crumbling of the empire. So the story is a mythology. So when something happened in reality, like just the ship sinking, it was so it, it basically was able to suck up all the symbolic meaning. So the Titanic sinking isn't just a ship sinking. It is a symptom of, of a, a dying of a society, a dying of an image. Um, it, and so therefore it captures the imagination. This, in a sense, is what Lewis is saying, is that some things happen in reality that so capture us because they, in a sense, um, are able to suck up all of this mythology, all of this deep truth that we know it's they're able to contain that. And, uh, you know, that's what he called incarnation, you know, the bringing of myth into reality. So for me, the Titanic is a type of incarnation. It's a type of reality that, that w- is able to contain and hold all of this mythology. That's, a, that's amazing. And like, you know, my mind goes to, you know, the whole debate on, you know, whether if, whether or not things in the New Testament, specifically the New Testament, um, are myth or are they fact? Did they happen or are they symbolic? And it seems like this conversation almost moves that whole thing to another plane and starts to ask new questions about that. Yeah, because like, you know, even even if you take if you take the Bible literally, but the um, completely literally and historically, um, but they're just events that happen, then they wouldn't matter. Like someone rising from the dead is, is just vaguely interesting. It's not like life change. <laughs> um, so what has to happen is whatever happens in reality, for that to take on such existential significance, it has to connect with deeper truths. It has to in some way contain and hold something much more than just the physicality. Um, and so that's what's interesting in theology. It's going asking the question, for example, why does the idea of crucifixion have such um, a hold on the imagination of so many people? Mm. 
You know, why is it? Why is it when it's really only a, a death of somebody? Crucifixion is only, in a very material way, um, a way of torturing and killing enemies of the state. Right. But we have to go, well, no, it's not just that. <laughs> For one reason is that we're still talking about it, <laughs> you know, years later. Um, the very act of doing that shows that it has some unconscious bind to us. Mm. And a lot of theology, and this is where I differ from this, but a lot of theology is attempting to unpack the meaning mm. of events, which I think is a very good thing. Uh, radical theology ultimately says that, that, that something like the crucifixion, its ultimate meaning is that it unravels meaning. Uh, so, it, it, you know, that, that could take us into a deeper conversation. But, but theology ultimately is an attempt to ask some, you know, biblical theology to ask why are these symbols, why are these events so existentially important to so many people? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, you're right. I could ask like 400 <laughs> questions about that right now. So I was hoping you could clarify something for me. So, so as I'm, I'm reading uh, C.S. Lewis and, and he starts talking about myth, and I know that's something that, that we've, we've discussed on, on prior podcasts, um, but Lewis almost, almost seems to uh, get stuck in the fact that he feels that uh, myth has to be uh, both historical fact, uh, how does he put it? Lewis argues that a historical fact can be both fact and myth. And that we must believe in both. Both bear equal weight, which is where I really have a, uh, a hard time with that. I would say I, I fall more on the side of, and, and this is a guy I, I'm, I have to get you into. <laughs> I, I know you have the book. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, yes. Oh, you're going, you're going Joseph Campbell. I'm going right straight now. Joey Camps right now. <laughs> but I feel like, so there's, a, there's an interview with Bill Moyers years and years ago. I think it was back in the 80s with Joseph Campbell where he talks about uh, Christian mythology where he, where he says, he has this great quote where he talks about um, how the virtues of the past are the vices of today, and what and many of what were thought to be the vices of the past are the necessities of today. The moral order has to catch up with the moral necessities of actual life and time here and now. And that is what we are not doing. The old-time religion belongs to another age, another people, another set of human values, another universe. By going back, you throw yourself out of sync with, hi- with history our kids lose their faith in the religions that were taught to them and they go inside. Dang. Yeah. So I, I fall more on the side of, of Campbell where he, he says, look, it doesn't need to also be rooted in fact necessarily. These are vehicles by which we, we convey deeper truths, but we have to evolve. We have to come up with new myths. Hmm. Is, is that kind of the sense that, uh, that you have about, uh, about where Lewis kind of, I don't know, yeah. yeah, this is yeah. This takes us into some interesting territory. Like for one thing, by the way. So Lewis, he would say um, that he's on the side of myth over fact. So at one at one stage, he says like if someone just grasps the mythology of the text without any connection to the factual element, they will kind of get deeper into the truth than one who holds it all literally but doesn't you know hear the poetry, hear the mythology. Totally. So Lewis wants to. In, in some respects, say that. Uh, Lewis also but wants to very much root this in reality. Now, I agree mm. with Lewis here in the sense that um, I think that when events like the Titanic sinking happen, something in reality uh, is able to galvanize and basically corral 
more amorphous mythology into something tangible. Now, where I disagree with Lewis is for me, these are contingent events. You know, it's like something happened to a group of people, you know, 2000 years ago, you know, like, so we don't know what, all we have is testimony to the event. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's not a commitment to some sort of like, um, kind of, uh, you know, God coming down. I think all you can say is that something happened in reality that, that really captured existentially, you know, the, 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 these, this group of people. Yeah. So in that way, Christianity is, is an historical religion. It makes an historical claim. And I like that dimension. And then also, I would also want to say that some of the, um, the uh, imagery of Christianity um, I think is very, very strong. And, and, and so it continues to be alive. Mm. So sometimes it's not actually that you need it's not that you kind of need new things to happen. The You just need to reinterpret the old things. Mm. Like crucifixion, for example, it keeps on having so much freight that it's able to bear new interpretations. Um, ultimately, that's what I think hints at the truth. The truth is that the uh, crucifixion ruptures meaning. Hence, there's always new interpretations because no interpretation grasps it. It's actually a very radical, it's like the sinking of the Titanic where that is a symbol of the, the end of something, the end of a type of world, the end of a type of organization of society. For me, the crucifixion marks the end of a certain form of religious, political, and cultural thought. So, um, yeah, that's that's what interests me about the symbol of the crucifixion. Okay, we're not going to get too, too far into this, but yeah. I, I want to give uh, your pyro seminars a little bit of a plug here and ask you yeah. to go just a little bit further into this because they have done me... Uh, just a world of good insofar as like unlocking new ways to think about this. Like you said, coming, coming to these old things with um, a new set of interpretation. And so I know you get into some of this um, specifically, I can't remember the name of it, but I think it's either the, the absurd cross or I've taken so many of them now, but you get into Paul Hessert's work. Yes. And I think that just as a teaser, since we've talked about it a couple times already, just even on this episode, when you say that it unravels meaning, what, what do you mean by meaning and how is meaning something that a lot of times in our culture almost needs unraveling? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so as, you, as you're mentioning, I do these monthly seminars, power seminars that allow me to go much deeper than, than I usually can on a one-off talk or a podcast. Um, and that's, the, that's really the space where, we, where I delve into these. Um, and you're right. In one of those seminars, I dealt explicitly with the work of Paul Hessert. He wrote a book called Christ in the End of Meaning. And in that book, he argues that uh, the crucifixion, what's, the radical thing about the crucifixion is how it actually ruptures um, uh, everything we think. You know, it's like the idea of God dying is the ultimate absurdity. You know, that for we can't hear it now, but the idea that God dies is is kind of like saying square triangle. You know, yeah. um, Paul Hesser he explores how um, how how Christianity he feels at its core is about rupturing our entire way of structuring life. So all of us basically live between. Uh, we're who we are and who we'd like to be, which is called the is-ought issue. You know, we are this and we'd like to be something else. And we strive for things and we hope for things. And we, we all have different 
political opinions, whatever, but we live between the is and the ought. And power is what helps us move from the is, what we are, to what we should be. And meaning is what, we, what we're what we aiming towards. That's what's meaningful. And Paul Hessert argues that Christianity ruptures this entire way of thinking. It mm. breaks the is and the ought. It stops you from doing... Grace is the radical move where you, ha- you don't have to do anything. You don't have to move anywhere. You, ha- you simply stop. You accept that you're accepted. You're able to look at your own violence and your own issues, and you're able to tarry with them without moving. And that in and of itself is more transformative to you as an individual and to society than all the striving that we often kind of fall foul of. So the end of meaning for Hessert could be boiled down to the end of the way we structure our reality, always striving for things that we never get, which can be called the body of death, where we live in this constant guilt that we're not living up to something. We scapegoat blaming other people for not getting where we need to get to. And, um, and that actually Christianity represents a freedom from this entire way of living. Wow. Oh, man. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Love it. So well, actually... See, yeah, I mean, like, just just in, in nature of grace, for example, like what Paul Hesser does, one example is he, he'll always go, he'll give the religious reading of something like forgiveness. And a religious reading of forgiveness is, you know, one of three things, right? Either, you know, he didn't really mean to do that. So let's, let's give you a second chance. Let's forgive you, right? Hmm. Or, you know, what you did wasn't that bad. So let's forgive you. Or, well, it was bad, but we'll give you a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance, right? That's the religious notion of, of, of forgiveness. But, but Hessert says that the Christian notion of forgiveness is, is that, that you don't have to do anything. That to be forgiven is to, to not have a second chance to, to get to your ideal, not be patted on the back and said, we'll, we'll have another go. Forgiveness is the experience in which you're radically accepted for who you are. You experience um, a absolute grace for who you are. And it's actually that that helps you become a better person. Sounds like uh, Caputo's mad economy. Exactly. It, that's exactly it. Yeah. And so if you think of it like a court where, you know, someone's broken into a house and so they go to court and the judge says either, well, listen, it wasn't a big deal. It's your first offense, so we'll let, let you off. Or they say, well, you know, you broke in and that was, but you didn't know there was people in the house. So, hey, you didn't really know what you were doing or something like that. That's the kind of worldly grace or religious grace, we know. But then imagine that person breaks into a second house and this time they get put in prison, right? But then they go to a therapist in prison and the therapist says, I'm not saying you're innocent or guilty. None of that. I'm just saying you're accepted. I just want you to start talking about who you are and what you are. And over maybe weeks or months, the person is able to come to terms with themselves. That is the radical Christian notion of grace, which is which is kind of, an, so you've got the legal version, which we need. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But then you've got the radical Christian notion, which is pure acceptance. And um, that's a good way of kind of separating the two out. Ah, I love it. 
I'm just looking down at my questions. I'm like, I don't really have any good follow-ups to that at all. <laughs> We're going to talk about uh, Lewis's desire thing. Oh, yes. So we would love to hear you talk because we've heard, I think we've heard you speak on this before, but um, this very idea that Lewis talks about desire beyond desire or um, Adam and I were actually talking about this before we we started recording tonight. This idea that there is something beyond just our physical, biological uh, senses and sensations, and and oftentimes what we what we view as as desire are are merely the the byproducts or the residue of of desire itself. So we would love to hear you kind of just kind of expand on that idea. Yeah, I mean, th- this is one of the areas that I find very rewarding in Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I, I was reading Lewis against himself, and I was trying to find these really pregnant, cool elements in Lewis. And one of them was in his his whole thing of joy, mm. and his notion of joy. And his notion of joy is 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 interesting because he would almost say happiness is you know you you enjoy something you have. You're happy because you've got you know you're drinking a good scotch, you're watching a good movie, you're happy. Yeah, but. Joy is a type of happiness in something you don't have. Joy is this for him is this technical term for kind of like um, something being brought to mind Mm. that gives you pleasure, but you don't have it. Like I imagine, you know, if you love somebody and you find a little present that they once bought you and maybe they've died or you can't be with them, that present casts up a memory of them. But it doesn't bring them back. You know, they're not there. So you get this this experience of pleasure and also suffering. It's a pleasurable pain. And that's kind of what Lewis means by joy. Um, it's, it's similar to what Kant meant when he talked about the sublime. For Kant, the sublime is some experience you have that's so awe-inspiring that it reminds you that maybe there's something beyond your senses, beyond what you can taste, touch, see, or feel. Mm. Funny thing for Kant is it doesn't give you that because by definition, what is beyond our senses can't be sensed. <laughs> so <laughs> the sublime does is the sublime calls to mind what it cannot call to mind. <laughs> it, it brings to you what remains at a distance. It, so And so the experience of the sublime is the experience of being in the world, but not of it. It opens up this space where you feel weirdly kind of um, watching something material, but being but it, 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 it's sparking off a desire for something more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's, I've just given a talk on this. Actually, you guys, I, I know you heard it because you were talking about it online, but we're you know, C.S. Lewis wrote a short story that dealt with this. Yes. Where yes. Um, he basically, the, the, he was warning in this short story called Light, he was warning people that, that when you have that sense of the numinous, that sense of something beyond the physical world, which, by the way, um, doesn't necessarily mean you believe there's anything beyond it. It's just you have a sense that there is what can't cause a thing in itself, as in a world that you cannot experience because you know, you experience the world through your senses. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis said, when you, when you feel like that, the two things to avoid are crude materialism, where you just shut the world down to a closed system of cause and effect, and you, and you lose your ears to that sense of joy. But on the other hand, what's even worse, what's even more dangerous, is to give yourself to someone who says, I can give you the thing 
that you are desiring, that that sublime noumenal experience, I can tell you what that is. We can we can put that into words or into experience or into a book. And for Lewis, he says that's even more dangerous. Mm. So if, if you've got, a, let's call them in the traditional evangelical term, a seeker, then then a seeker, a church, let's call a seeker-sensitive church, wants to take that person's longing and answer it, give them the answer to the longing. But for C.S. Lewis, at his best, the, the answer is not to fulfill the longing. It's to stay true to it. It's to fuel it. It's to actually live in it. So instead of shutting it down with kind of new atheism or, or saying you can answer it through uh, fundamentalist fanaticism, what you need to do is maintain a sensitivity to that longing and learn to love it, learn to enjoy it, and learn to make it into something positive. I feel like this would be the perfect time for you to talk about um, something we were talking before we started recording. Uh, and this, this, this thing that we're noticing, this trend where folks seem to want to replace one expert, air quote, finger quote, with another expert. Mm-hmm. And, just, and, and, and it goes back to something that we've talked about on the show quite often. It's you know, this belief by proxy. And we, we see a lot of people, we encounter a ton of people who are coming out of maybe that fundamentalist background, that, yeah. that upbringing, who maybe had that person who they would kind of lean against for their for their system of beliefs. Yeah, and, and I think this kind of goes back to what we were talking about, even with with authors like C.S. Lewis. You know, in my younger years, I would have probably read it and just absorbed everything. Yeah, like I am who I am because I yeah. identify with Lewis. He becomes like yeah. a spokesperson for my spiritual ego. Right. Whereas now, I feel like I can read it. Um, still appreciate it, but I'm st- I'm not afraid any longer to disagree with portions of it. Yes, yes, absolutely. This this is um I, this is very important to me. It's part of the work that I'm doing at the moment is uh is around the theme of transference, and um, transference is a technical term that describes uh, uh, the experience where you take an early type of relationship and you put it onto a contemporary relationship. So you take a relationship you had with, say, your mother, and you replay that with your partner. Now, we all do it. You all see transference happening. But but transference is a little bit more technical than just that. Transference is it's a particular type of relationship you have with your primary caregivers where you think that they know the secret of your heart. Hmm. When you're a child, your parents, if they were hopefully good parents, they are trying to read your body language and your crying and answer what you need. And from very early on, your parents are like gods. And you're trying to, you know, they seem to know your everything you need and the inner workings of your life. And in fact, they help you construct that. But when you grow up, then we have a tendency to try to seek someone else who, who has that ability, who knows the secret of our hearts not just an expert on something, because you can respect an expert, but actually someone who who really has the secret of the universe. Now, we don't consciously think this, but unconsciously, 
we get we we tend to do this. And for me, the the my role in in parotheology is to break transference. So when somebody instead of when someone becomes disillusioned, say with their Christianity, but then they they convert to another religion or to humanism or whatever. What hap- that's the religious notion of conversion. It's moving from one worldview to another, right? So you move from Islam to Christianity, Christianity to Judaism, Judaism to humanism. Um, for me, the, the true um, definition of conversion is conversion from the need to convert. You're converted out of conversion, which means you, you, not, you don't become disillusioned with one religion and then find a second one. You become disillusioned with any subject who's, who, who knows the truth. You, you take responsibility for your existence and you're freed from this transference thing where we're always seeking you know, the person who has the, the right answer. So that, that's, that's what breaking transference means. It's the rupturing of that, of that structure. It's so good, Pete, because I, I really... We've become hypersensitive to this, you know, when we see, and again, back to social media, it's especially on social media that we see this, you know, associate, disassociate phenomenon happening all the time where I used to be um, really identified or overly identified with this way of thinking, be it um, a fundamentalist version of religion, Christianity, say, or, um, you know, a fanatical form of humanism or, you know, whatever. And then when the conversion happens, you see people, the pendulum swings all the way to the other side. And you're right. We, we become almost obsessed with this conversion yes. thing. And so why, yeah. why are we so obsessed with this conversion thing? Why are we always needing the new expert to, to be our brand ambassador? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. That's that's and you, I remember these books, especially at the time of like Francis Schaeffer. There was this the whole range of books that would talk about worldview Christianity. Yes. So Christianity was yeah a system of thinking um, and practices, just like you know other systems and practices. And so conversion, in a sense, was like you know moving from one worldview to another. But my my argument is that Christianity at its at its most radical is the breakdown of all worldviews. It is the the rupture of that very form of being and of thinking. Um, and it's such a fundamental way for us to exist. We're always looking for the new, as you say, the new, what Lacan called subject supposed to know, the new person who has the secret of our heart. And that's why you'll notice that some people who give up evangelical Christianity, for example, and then embrace, say, atheism, um, their atheism has the same texture yes. as as what they had before, you know. So although belief is completely different, the the way they hold the belief is fundamentally the same. We see the same thing um, when people either go from uh, a more uh, and I hate you know this is where language breaks down. It's not fair, but I mean just for the sake of the conversation, when we see people go from like a conservative version of Christianity to a more quote unquote liberal or progressive or new or fresh version of Christianity, the, uh, you're right, the texture remains the same. Yeah. There's a similar fanaticism. And so how can, I, I really appreciate the pyro-theological approach to this. And I, I even think, you know, of course I'm reading back into it now, but like, like Bonhoeffer, and I know you've used Bonhoeffer in your work, 
uh, dreamed of religionless Christianity. And a lot of scholars believe that Jesus, you know, never even came to start a religion. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think there's more, like I, I tend to see that, like, uh, you know, Jesus was primarily, you know, in, within a religion and critiquing it and bringing things to light within it. Yeah. Um, like, and, and every time you do that, by the way, new religions are formed. Like look at Luther. Luther wasn't trying to start a new religion or, you know, the Protestantism, he was critiquing Catholicism. Right. And the critique does one of two things. It both changes what you're critiquing, if you're lucky, and it also branches into something new. But the new thing is not the truth. That in itself will need its own prophet to then critique it. Um, and, then, and then what happens again is two things. That will hopefully change what's being critiqued, and it will also likely give birth to something new. That's just the way these things, you know, these things operate. Um, but yeah, so um, what we're talking about there in relation to, you are saying about uh, people who had changed from one one position to another, but they retain the finances. Oh yes, I wanted to say about that. Mm-hmm. What yeah. I'm arguing is, is not that the, um, the passion is wrong. I think the passion is correct. The problem, and C.S. Lewis brings this out in his short story, Light, the problem is, when you when you try to answer your passion, when you cannot, here's the thing, when you cannot bear the weight of the passion and the questioning and the desire, you want to shut it down. But the real challenge is to keep it open. Uh, what what Derrida called a passion for the impossible, mm-hmm. which means which means that, for example, you're driven by justice, but you're always reminding yourself that you don't have justice. And at any time you think you can kneel down justice, you are going to be the monster. Like Nietzsche once said, when you fight monsters, be careful you do not become one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and the way you do that, the way you become the monster is when you go, oh, that past person, like past me, didn't know what justice was. But I know now. Because what Derrida would say you've done is you've taken the passion that should drive you to to, to live better, to to, to see a better world. You've taken that legitimate passion and you have closed it down on a certain interpretation and that will always be dangerous. And that's why in Buddhism, by the way, you've got that beautiful parable, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Because the idea is if you meet the Buddha, it's not the Buddha. The Buddha is always still to come. The Buddha is, is something to strive towards, something to move towards. So as soon as, the, as soon as, if you meet freedom on the road, kill it. It's not freedom. If you find an LA cult, a hippie cult that says, we know what liberation is, we know what freedom and justice is, join us. Run for the hills because they've taken <laughs> that passion for the impossible and they've said, you can, you can have it, you can understand it, you can, you can put it in a bottle. I feel, like, I feel like that works so perfectly for, um, so one of our favorite folks besides yourself, obviously, is, uh, is Father Richard Rohr where he talks about uh, what is it? Five? Did he expand it to six things six now? Now he added sexuality. Yeah, six. The six things that he deems to be the non-rational or the transrational, and I feel like that Derridian argument works well for all of those things. Yeah. Where, where we we can never fully achieve any of those things. Like to say that I have fully loved, or to say that I have I have found achieved true justice or understood. But like the idea behind it being that we constantly pursue it. We keep pushing towards it. Yeah. yeah. Like, like a scientist, like a good scientist. Yeah, like right. A scientist, 
is driven weirdly by a truth that they will never get, right? They're yeah. driven by, you know, basically getting the answer, the secrets of the universe. And in their constant pursuit of that, they create, they create discoveries, discoveries that help us un uh, uncover uh, or unconceal the universe, the uh, theories that help bring practical things to, to humanity. Um, so basically, they create um, so much good stuff out of this passion for the impossible, because the impossible is the scientific answer. Um, and it's, it's that which actually drives the scientist. And this, the good scientist enjoys not getting what they want. That's the trick is that they, they're not like, I'm so unhappy until I get the singular answer. A good scientist enjoys not getting what they're driven to try to get, which sounds weird to say. No, it, but it doesn't. They that, yeah, they're also, it's also is a creative, productive force. I think we all know that the hunt is better than the kill. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think we all know that, uh, I remember a Lewis quote that I used to use all the time, all of life's best havings are wantings. Uh, yes, we yes, yes. We won't tell your wife that though. All of life's best havings are wantings. <laughs> yeah. No, we won't, we won't tell my wife that, but, no, no. but, but to, but to bring Tillich into this too, in, um, in dynamics of faith, uh, which blew my mind. And I, we sent it out in our Patreon book club is the book of the month last month. And, uh, hopefully people are going to engage in that. And, when he talks about um, uh, faith as ultimate concern, and he talks about the demonic as you know the idolatry of that thing that's you know not you're not supposed to be able to have it, and if you get it in this concrete form and you commit yourself to it, um, you're 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 an idolater, and that creates this tyrannical thing that's going to wreck your life and wreck society. And I feel like we're just talking around all these different authors all saying the same thing, which is really neat. Yeah, there's, there's various approaches and, and various differences, but we're, we're people like Tillich and Derrida and interestingly Lewis and Kant all kind of meet here is in their attempt to keep open the space between what you desire and getting what you desire. In one sense, they say that what ultimately animates our desire is like light. You don't see it. It's that which allows you to see. Um, and, and what they all say, which is really interesting, because some people will say, and I think um, I think Tim Keller is it Tim Keller? Yeah. Was he was on your podcast once? You know, he he talked about how some people don't doubt. You know, some people have certainty, and I think he has certainty. Um, but what's interesting about all these thinkers is they're saying, well, you're absolutely right. It's not that we all doubt. Some people don't, and that's even worse. That this is the the problem is when you have absolute when you have the tyranny of certainty it's it's actually more terrifying because um, you know when you can't uh, embrace uh, questioning and learning from others et cetera et cetera it leads to a type of psychic death it's psychosis psychotics find it impossible to doubt and it's a it's a very difficult thing so all of these thinkers are saying how do you avoid a psychotic type of faith. And a psychotic type of faith is a faith in which the your desire is oh we you know we can answer we can you can have the thing you desire for Lewis it's like no 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 God is to us what Shakespeare is to Hamlet you know you you there and there is no there is no way of Hamlet grasping Shakespeare and yet Shakespeare is everywhere in the play of Hamlet. That is so good. The, the quote that I wanted to read just to give people a little tease if they, if they get his sermon or essay or whatever you want to call it, The Weight of Glory, 
I think this really sums it up, you know, as we wrap up, maybe talk about one or two things after this, but he says the books or, you know, he says the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are all good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they're not the thing itself. They're only a scent of the flower we haven't found, the echo of a tune we haven't heard, news from a country we've never visited. Yes, that's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Um, and this, this, this gets to the heart of why I wanted to read Lewis, and it also gets to the heart of the, the disagreement I have with him, because basically what Lewis does is he embraces the longing he embraces desire. He embraces the not having. He sees the he sees idolatry, and when you think you've grasped it, what the the, the the ground of being. But what what Lewis still has is he still has this idea. But maybe, but one day, that will all be fulfilled. The difference between which is what Kant basically says. Mm. The difference between Kant and Hegel and philosophy is Hegel Hegel takes Kant says Kant's completely right. But there's just one there's just one little difference. And that is that it's not that the absolute is found at the end of our longing in the next life. The absolute is found in the longing itself. So what you do is you it's a very small shift, but it's a shift where you go actually when you simply embrace that that pattern for the impossible, when you live into that, you are actually getting to the heart of reality itself. You are touching on the fundamental Christian experience, you know? So that's, that's, that's where, that's where I want to go with parotheology is to say that this is the, this is the old, um, what Shizek would say about the cross. Christ, God says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So God experiences this longing and this gap in God's self. So when you experience that longing and you go, I don't have, God, I don't have the absolute, I don't have the truth, the answer, you're actually having the experience of Christ on the cross, you know, so you are, you're in the heart of truth. And that's Shizek, who's a radical atheist, who's huh. going, this is, um, this is why he's, he likes the crucifixion, because he says, the longing and the sense of lack is actually, um, brings you to the heart of what it means to call yourself a Christian. So that's why he is a radical atheist, says, you know, all the atheists have to go through the Christian experience. Hmm. <laughs> it's the experience of the loss of meaning. It's the experience of the rupture of, of reality um, and the experience that you don't have what you seek. Oh. So I have, I have one last question, and that was really good just now. So I hope everybody listening right now can just marinate in that for a moment. Maybe even hit pause right pull, now. Pull your car over. Play off the side of the road. Get off the treadmill. We've given this warning before, and one of our good buddies literally got a ticket yeah. the same episode <laughs> that we warned him. Said, don't drive. And he was driving, delivering pizzas, and he got pulled over. I'm sorry, Clay. Um, <laughs> True story. There, there's, one, there's one thing that, that Lewis talks about in Surprise by Joy that I really wanted to hear your take on that I thought was really interesting um, and profound was just this idea that there's a connection or relationship between one essential property and its object. Um, the idea that the act of thinking about or attending to something like the object of your love is to cease to love it 
And conversely, to attend to your own love is to cease to attend to your loved one. Oh, yeah. You cannot both enjoy and contemplate your interactivities, he says. Oh, yeah, that was so good. It reminds me of, of, of Major League Two. Of course. The, the movie Major League Two where the catcher literally cannot throw the ball back to second base because he's thinking <laughs> too hard about it. And so every time he goes to throw the second base, he throws the baseball into the outfield. <laughs> That's the first thing that came into my brain. That's right. I remember that. That's so good. Yeah. Nice, nice connection, John. So I would love for you, a non-sports analogy, I would love for, <laughs> love for you to, to expand on that because I, I think that's such an interesting uh, idea. Yeah, and that's very key to um, C.S. Lewis's whole kind of uh, argument for faith is what you're touching on. He, he originally got the distinction from a philosopher who's not in the one now called Alexander. Um, and Alexander talked about enjoyment and contemplation. Mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis, interestingly, misunderstood what Alexander was saying. But it was, <laughs> this is what, how great philosophy moves forward is a creative misunderstanding creates really new stuff, right? That's so, awesome. That's awesome. Well, yeah, so Lewis's misunderstanding actually is a bit of a blessing because what Lewis is saying, I think, is has significance. To enjoy something is a technical term, not for liking something, but for kind of like directly experiencing. Yeah. So mm. if you're in pain, technically you're enjoying the pain from a technical sense. You're not enjoying it, but, you, but it's yours. You're experiencing it. Like and I'm, then I'm enjoying some pain right now. Yes, yeah, it's not good. But, uh, and then contemplation is, in a sense, your reflection on the pain. And Lewis makes a very good point where he says, it's hard to, you can't enjoy a joke and also think about the theory of jokes. Uh, as soon as you start to, to deconstruct the joke, you're kind of out of it. He says, now you're enjoying the thought of the joke and you're contemplating uh, the kind of the structure, but these two never happen in the same place. Mm-hmm. Enjoyment and contemplation. You you enjoy love, but as soon as you start thinking about the love, you're now enjoying the thought. <laughs> you're you're, and, and for him actually, the one exception is myth. In myth, enjoyment and contemplation kind of come together. So in in a good myth, you you your mind is fed and also your experience is fed so he did kind of at later on have a sense that myth kind of brings these two together um but that was part of his thing of going like you as soon as you conceptualize now put it in tillich's terms as soon as you conceptualize the absolute as soon as you start to think about what lies beyond the phenomenal world you're contemplating it and you're no longer in, in it enjoying it you're no longer you're kind of one step removed. So it's kind of, in a sense, for Lewis, a way of reminding us that every time we conceptualize the what in philosophy is called the thing in itself, you lose it. Mm. You know, I, it's, that, it's like, you know, that phrase, God is nowhere, God is now here. It's like, it's a phrase, G-O-D-I-S-N-O-W-E-H-E-R-E, um, which can be read, God is nowhere, or God is now here. Like you can, but you can't see it both <laughs> simultaneously. It's one or the other. It's like, as soon as you say, God is he, he now here, uh, God is nowhere. But as soon as you say, God is nowhere, and you just exist, God is now here, you know. That's, um, that's good. Yeah. Now, by the way, and saying all of this, I don't. This doesn't commit one, as I say, to theism or anything like that. This, like Derrida, was very into this idea of the impossible, this longing for something that is not of this world. But Derrida was very clear to go as soon as you conceptualize what that is, 
you've 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 missed the point. <laughs> so as soon as you conceptualize that as God or anything like that, you know that you're you're there's a problem. So this is just about orienting yourself to something not of this world. That to be human is to be sensitive to a longing for the impossible. And religion at its best is is not that which satisfies that longing, but which actually fuels it. Mm. It's all like, you know, you're thirsty and you think religion's going to give you a glass of water, but it actually gives you some salt. <laughs> that's, kind of, that's kind of it. And it sounds weird because people think, no, religion... Is it's what satisfies your hunger. But you go like, no, 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 religion is what like sensitizes you to that hunger yeah. and helps you to enjoy it. It is the wound that heals. It is the hunger that satisfies. It's the dryness that actually um, is refreshing. You know, as a, as a former pastor, I, I know that so much of what I used to do was my own insecurity wanting to feel like I fixed people. Yeah, and I and I know that that's my own sort of you know confession to anybody listening right now. And the interesting thing is, is in engaging with your work has been so helpful for me because it's it's forced me to come back to the the texts that I grew up on, um, you know, the Bible, uh, church itself, you know, community gathering symbols, sacraments, and realize that there were so many things there that were so much better and richer than I had given them credit for by trying to pin them down, concretize them, make them uh, easy, make them you know, certain, discernible. When I, I'd just like to almost end with this. The thing about the, you know, the, Christ, the Christ is as a Christian, I am subscribing to someone who is no longer here. You know, Christ is to come, always yes. to come always to come. And, yeah. and in fact, he even says, you know, those that thought they had me nailed down, when he says those are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we blah, 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 in your name, in your name, in your name, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, I never knew you. And well, who did you know? Well, you visited me in prison. Well, we didn't know that was you. Oh, well, we, you, you gave a glass of water. We didn't know that was you. you. I was sick and you helped me. We didn't know that was you. It's the as soon as you think you've got it, he's like, nope. Yeah. To come. Yeah. Always to come. Always to come. And it's a, very, it's a very Jewish notion as well. Like, I mean, if you could imagine somebody going to a rabbi and saying, rabbi, rabbi, you know, I feel like I don't know what's going on in life. I feel like I'm lost in a, in a, in a world of, of so much complexity and so much uh, disagreement that I don't know where to stand. And the rabbi would turn to that person and say, I know, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> wonderful right? That's the religious response is to go like, you know, we think it's terrible. We go to the person and go, this is terrible. My life is unraveling. And the, and the parotheology is saying, oh, it's amazing, isn't it? That unraveling, you're not unraveling, you're raveling. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but you know those those mean exactly the same thing. To so unravel means to pull apart, but to ravel also means to pull apart. But it doesn't have fun. It's wonderful. It's like you're not unraveling; you're raveling, revel in it. You know, revel in your raveling. And that's that's the difference between parotheology in a nutshell and confessional theology. For me, confessional theology tries to satisfy your passion for the impossible. It tries to see it. 
And parotheology is designed to sensitize you to it even more, to bring it even more to the foreground, but also to help you to enjoy it. So good, man. Uh, you know, I just, where can people, uh, you've helped us so much, you know, you're a friend of the, the podcast. It's, it's always good spending time with you, but, um, we, you know, we support your work. We think everybody should support your work and, and quick little plug and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, pyrotheology or radical Christianity, or, you know, a lot of the things that you teach on, I never get the sense that I always get the sense, I should say, put it as a positive that no matter where you are, on the spectrum of belief in all of these, you know, weird things, you know, spirituality, religion, atheism, theism, whatever. It seems to me like pyrotheology has something to bring to that and isn't asking you to necessarily change where you are, but to bring a new perspective to it. Yeah. Yes, that's it. It's not about the what of belief. You know, it's, you can have very healthy conservative communities, very unhealthy liberal communities. You can have very healthy liberal communities and very unhealthy conservative communities. Um, it's my, in relation to actually the conversation we've had tonight, because anytime you ask me, depending on what day it is, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a different definition of the core of, of parotheology. <laughs> but in relation to this conversation, the core is in a sense saying that, 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 what I want is to see this passion for the impossible um, kind of enlivened within us, to become sensitive to it and to allow it to transform us and to avoid the twin problems of a crude naturalism, which shuts down this, this passion um, and we close our ears to it, but also a kind of uh, fanaticism that says, oh, this, our community, we can answer that passion, that actually what we need are these spaces where that passion is found into ever more life um, and where we learn to actually enjoy it. And that's, that's what I'm interested in. And you can do that, uh, you know, w- within variety of different worldviews. So how would you recommend people engage with your work right now? You know, we support you on Patreon. What is, what's going on on Patreon with Pete Rollins right now? What other work do you have coming out? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I'm always, all my life I have relied on, the generosity of the people who enjoy my work. And I've been very lucky to be able to do that all my life. And more recently, um, with Patreon, that's really helped uh, me connect directly with those people who are working with me, with, you know, who are reading my material and engaging with it. And so what I'm trying to do is find as cheap a way as possible for me to give out material. Mm. Uh, so I do monthly lectures on Patreon for $5 a month on weekly reflections. But the thing is, there's lots of free stuff out there. I have like, you know, you could probably watch me for four days non-stop with the free stuff on YouTube. <laughs> so there, but, but, but also if you're interested in going deeper, I do have spaces for that as well, you know? Fantastic, man. Well, uh, you know, we'll put all that information in the show notes and, uh, this has been so much fun. It's, it's, it's helped us learn how to disagree. It's helped us learn how to critically engage those that we, you know, would have kept at arm's length before because of, you know, where we are, who we identify ourselves as being. It's, we've talked about desire, you know, we've talked about, uh, joy. We've talked about all these different things, man. Thank you so much for always making time, uh, to do something fun and, and getting into some shenanigans on the show here. Um, can we, can we lose John? John had to go get the power cord because the the computer's about to die. So he's 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 doing CEO business as per usual. 
Oh, uh, look at that. I thought you had employees. No, they did that. <laughs> Our Patreon <laughs> isn't doing that well yet. <laughs> Is that well? Not yet. But here, in light of what you're saying, the, the thing, the reason why I'm a friend of the podcast, you guys, is partly because I can see this lived out. The very fact you're called a deconstructionist is what's happened is you, your, your lives, because the way you are, your lives have opened up to more questioning and journeying. And instead of that being a negative thing, which I'm sure at the beginning was frightening and negative, like for all of us, but you have turned it into something positive that's exciting. Yeah. The whole thing about listening to deconstructionists is you guys are keeping open the space of the impossible the passion of the impossible. You're keeping open the experience of the sublime, which is like we're excited about questioning and, and arguing and discussing. And that's not negative. That's something positive. Mm. So if that, I think, is, is at the core of your very podcast. And I think that's why, you know, you're doing really well. And I just want to see that continue. And I'm hoping you'll be doing some live stuff at some stage, you know, um, uh, meet, meet the people who've been listening to your podcast. I think we'd all like that. I think we should all do it together. Well, yeah. I was just going to say, uh, when we make it out to LA, yes, I think it would be, um, I think it would just make sense to have the good Dr. Peter Rollins as our special guest. Oh, I would love that. Listen, come out to LA. I would love all of us to do a gig together. Be uh, amazing. So let's make it happen. 2018. Dream come true. 2018. We'll have to plan it out. We know you're already jet setting all over the world. Yeah, well, we'll make we'll make time for that. Thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Always love talking to you. I hope we didn't get too esoteric. Uh, oh, go I go to rabbits. I don't think so, man. We had Catherine Keller on the show, and people came stuck with us. <laughs> oh yeah, well yeah, she's amazing and very tough. So yeah, I'm yeah. sure stuff's like simple in, in comparison. <laughs> oh, thanks for all you do, man. Seriously, we are uh, huge fans of, of what you're doing and, and why you're doing it. And um, we'll, we'll keep this relationship alive. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Take care. Between words we never need. Wandering in silence, sheltered from violence below. So just thinking about all the things we just talked about with Peter freaking Rollins, I could do a whole nother episode with you <laughs> right now. Oh my gosh. Like, you know, how I figured it out though. There's, there's a certain, there's a, um, um, there's a sign. There's a sign. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a sign. There's a certain common denominator amongst really solid Peter Rollins episodes. And that is, as we interview him, because we can see him on Skype. Oh, I know what you're going to say. It gets progressively darker <laughs> into the point where there's just a tiny little bit of light. And you can barely see, Pete. <laughs> the, the light that's being cast off his computer is the only light in the room. Yeah. And so you can just see it's almost like he's in total blackness and there's just some powdery white light just <laughs> highlighting his features <laughs> as he drops huge nuggets yeah. of wisdom on us. Huge nuggets of wisdom. It's symbolic in a way. It's know? so freaking awesome. Peter being Pete, Pete being the uh, the light in in the darkness. You he, know, and he's disappearing into existential despair. <laughs> yeah, as, as the as the sun sets. Oh, but man. um, 
we could cover so many things on this. This is one of those episodes, friends, that you just need to, kind of like the one that he did with Rob Bell on Love. I mean, those were my favorite, probably my favorite recordings of Pete yet. Like, I just can't wait till that comes out in book form someday. Yeah. Um, this is one of those episodes, though, where, I mean, a lot of the things that we covered, I think, are so poignant and, and powerful for what's going on in kind of the zeitgeist of everything in spirituality today. Yeah. Go back and listen to it again. But for me... When we got to start talking about the whole idea of the last guru, and when we start, got to start really unpacking how we like to jump from expert to expert, and we want, you know, his whole idea of converting people from the need to be converted or do converting anymore, um, what's packed into that, the, you know, the spirit of what's packed into that idea, I think needs more people to engage with it. What is it with us that we need to find the new expert the new Mecca, the new megachurch, the new movement in order to validate what feels like a real deep insecurity. And what if we just started accepting us where we are, who we are, and uh, I think we'd do a lot better job loving each other Yeah, and not making enemies with every move we make away from the older versions of ourselves. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think... I think um... <clears throat> Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot to that. I think there's absolutely a lot to that. Um, and that's something that you and I have talked a lot about is the fact that why do we seem to fill this void uh, with these these false, uh, I don't know, so, false prophets, false... Uh, Experts, gurus. Yeah, uh, over and over and over again. It's yeah. just like, we, it's, it's, it's to the point where it's hypocritical. You know, we, we say like, oh, well, this person's full of crap. You know, I don't, I don't follow them anymore. But then, like in the same breath, in the same sentence, you're like, "Now I believe everything this guy says." Right, and you're like, "I don't want to be that person for anyone. I don't need someone like that in my life either." I'm not saying that there isn't a place, a time and a place for experts and 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 well-read and and knowledgeable people to to help point you in the right direction. But I think when you put too much weight and too much stock in that in your life to the point where it drives everything that you do, mm-hmm. that's a real problem. Totally agree. And I think it's a human problem. I think that, I think that's something that's very difficult for any of us to admit. Yeah, is that we always carry with us a fanaticist. Yep, we always carry with us a version of ourselves that's going to become a fundamentalist or a fanaticist of who we are at the current moment. Yeah, and it's not going to agree with the last one or the previous one to that or the previous one to that. And there's all these tensions that build up within us that we're constantly trying to reconcile, and we project. We project onto others. We, we find scapegoats. We find gurus. We find all of these lines we have to draw. And I'm just, I'm really trying my best to just become aware of that. Yeah. And, and the need to do that. Obviously, the only expert worth being an expert is Pete himself. You know, he, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I think he, he would say he's supposed to be the, you know, no, he, yeah, I'm just, he'd be an excellent cult leader. Yeah. <laughs> So funny. (laughs) Outstanding. So good. So just, yeah. I mean, getting to engage with the thoughts of Lewis like that with him was such a treat for me because I'm a Lewis freak. Yeah. And I love uh, the way Pete sheds a light on some of that stuff. And I just, I, again, I just can't wait to listen back through this one myself. Yeah. And, and just feel all the feels that was Oh, it was so good. Well, and to, and to like finally dig in 
at like this age or whatever, yeah. um, at, at this point in my life and dig back through C.S. Lewis, who like, let's be honest, like every big church that has like a bookstore in it has a boatload of C.S. Lewis books in there. I mean, you have to, it's obligatory. Right. It's part of the, the owner's manual. When right. You, when you buy the, your Christianity, you get like C.S. Lewis that comes with it. Unless it's one of those churches that like has the cult leader uh, pastor that only sells his own books right. in the bookstore. Run. <laughs> That's get, the case. Yeah. get out of there. <laughs> get out of there quick. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it was very interesting to, to read back through some of the stuff that I probably hadn't read in a really long time. And like, and still find new things that I enjoyed in it, like feel comfortable enough to say like, I can't really follow you there. Like, yeah, that's wonderful. That's great. And, and like the guy set the example himself. You look back and we talk about this in the episode, his, um, you know, the debate, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, Anscombe's debate and where she basically took him to task and like railed on him for what she thought was a super weak argument. And like, how many egomaniacs do we know now who would be like, "Well, screw you!" Like, Just dig their heels in. I'm leaving it the way it is. Be That's louder, the way I feel. Tweet about it. Yes. All those kinds of things. He literally went back and was like, "Oh, dang, you're right. This the argument does suck." Young female up and coming thinker. Yeah. What in that age would have been like a joke, right? You know, not a joke, but you know what I mean. Like, I mean, they just didn't have the clout. Yeah. And Lewis was like, "Dude, you're right." I need to change my book. And he did. Not, not only did he do that, and we didn't talk about this in the episode, but later on, so this, this debate club uh, was, Socratic, was... The Socratic Club? Yeah, the Socratic Club was predominantly female, and it was set up so people could come in and like d- from various different backgrounds and debate different ideas Yep, and, and kind of hash them out and, and talk them out um, amongst each other. And so they needed a essentially a faculty advisor. And so... Uh, C.S. Lewis becomes that advisor. He's kind of the guy in charge there. Well, like when it came time for him to kind of like retire from that role, he mm. recommended that Anscombe would would be his successor. So not only does he does he get owned by this young like whippersnapper, so great, this young female um, philosopher, but like remembered it to the point where he was like, she's pretty sharp, man. Like she should probably take over this role. I love it. That's and the spirit of what I want. That's what's up. That's what's up. None of us own this thing. We all just get to participate in the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so good. Dude. Check out Pete Rollins' Atheism for Len if you want a promo code for that. Uh, shoot us a message. Check the show notes. Um, it is so worth doing. Um, if what you want in life is to just be comfortable in your opinion, I don't know why you're listening to this show. <laughs> yeah. But... Don't do atheism for Lent. Right. If what you want in life is to breathe the fresh open air of looking at people that you'd never thought you'd read in your life and letting them critique your beliefs in a way that brings great joy and humility, um, it, I think it's one of the most spiritual exercises I've ever done. I've done it two years in a row now. I'm going to do it a third year. Absolutely love it. Atheism for Lent with P. Rollins. Promo code coming at you if you want it and um that's all i got yeah musical guest this week is a dude named eddie berman who is a baller wonderful stuff you're gonna love it um you've already heard some of the clips or whatever but go check out the rest of his stuff as always um you know if you dig it we've got a playlist on spotify that you can follow um it's just under if you 
if you type in under um, search where you search for music, the deconstructionists, um, our playlist will pop up. You can follow it. I update it every single week with whoever the artist is for that week. Um, go follow them. Tell them we sent you all that good stuff. All that good stuff. And uh, this is our last episode in November. Yep. So we start with December. Um, coming into the holidays now, we have some really cool oh. episodes in store. That oh, we got some treats. You guys don't even know. We're going to finish off this year strong. We promise you. And um, We roll strong. And for, for the one dude who, who was getting after me months ago because he swore up and down that we use Screamo music uh, in an episode... I can honestly tell you, sir, we never have. <laughs> oh, the guy that said we use Screamo? Yeah, yeah. If he's still listening, I don't know. I, I appreciate your feedback. Um, we've literally never used Screamo music ever. We usually use like... Until? Until next week. <laughs> <laughs> so buckle up, buddy. This one's for you. <laughs> that is so funny. So it's not... It, well, next week isn't even really Screamo. It's, just, it's definitely heavy. There's some screaming involved, though. So if that's your definition of Screamo, there you go. Uh, it's gonna be an angsty week. It's gonna be an angsty week. So, uh, so if you wanna if you wanna hear some backstory on some uh, the insights of the Christian music industry and that sort of thing, um, it's gonna be a sweet episode. It was fun for me. Um, I'm not gonna tell you who it is. This is one of John's heroes. One of my heroes. Love it. So fantastic stuff. Enjoy yourselves this week. And uh, guys, yeah, we love you. Get ready. It's coming. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for letting us be our extroverted enthusiastic selves and not banging us up on iTunes about that anymore. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I think the few people that did not like that got their reviews out early. Yep. And have moved on to NPR. moved on to somebody else. <laughs> this is not your home. No. Oh, one thing before I forget, because I'm a terrible cousin. My cousin and her husband live, they were one of our first listeners ever. Oh, yeah? And they live in pr- potentially, possibly the most remote area that would... we. Like out of all of our listeners, I would imagine, unless we have somebody listening in like some lab in Antarctica somewhere, but they li- <laughs> they listen from Unalaska, Alaska. <gasps> it is literally an island off the coast of Alaska, and they've been listening since the beginning. And they are super like I love my cousin so much, my cousin Aaron and her husband. And um, so they're out in Unalaska, Alaska, and they have this really cool ministry out there. Um, I just want to give them a shout out. Yeah. All you got to do is Google it. I think they're literally the only Methodist church in Unalaska, Alaska. But they have the dopest like videos on there. They have like a drone uh, camera that like they've videotaped these uh, these promo videos. And it is like the most majestic Dang. videos of like like God's country, man. Like this place is gorgeous. They have like streams and mountains in their backyard. I love it. It is gorgeous. So check them out like. I meant to mention that like months ago. I'm a terrible cousin. I apologize, Aaron. I'm a terrible cousin. You're okay. You're okay. <laughs> so there, there you have it. <laughs> Check it out. But um, we love you guys. Guys, it's almost the holiday season. So happy yes. holidays. Whatever that means to you. Whatever that means to you. <laughs> Festivus. Yeah. Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Uh, what are some of the other ones? Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> that was assumed. Uh yeah. We love you guys. We hope you're having a happy holiday season. Thanks for spending some of it with us. For now, we are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Keep deconstructing, everybody. Love you guys. Love you guys. We're greeted in the morning by the fury of the sun. 
came to burn our bridges, but we beat them to the punch. Take me to your pastures that I ruined from the start. Cut off all my hair and strip my car of all its parts. Cause now I wake up in the quiet when the city's gone to sleep. And I rummage and I ravage like a savage through their streets. Is it any use to call you now? Is your river running wild?
Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.